Well, or that was the foxhole uh, one. That was the foxhole yeah. one. to say good uh, evening and welcome to everybody uh, out there. This is Amateur Radio Roundtable. It's a show about ham radio. And if you're out there tonight listening on shortwave, on international shortwave station WBCQ, uh, we welcome you. Uh, we're on 7490 kilohertz. Uh, hopefully uh, got a good signal uh, all around the world. So send us an email, if you will, to tom at w5kub.com and let us know where you are and give us a signal report how the how we sound tonight and again ham radio if you don't know what ham radio amateur radio is it's a it's a it's an interesting hobby so stay tuned and you might learn something about it tonight uh hey the net we had the net again tonight i'm trying to get it back on uh, schedule the 40 meter net we had a few uh, check-ins tonight we had a, a couple new people that checked in tonight so um, we uh, appreciate that. Let's see if there's anybody new in the chat room, anybody new out there that joined us tonight for the first time. Just say hello in the chat room. I'd like to hear from you and see you. Also, I need to remind everybody uh, right now, if you will, hit the subscribe button there on, on uh, YouTube. You need to hit that subscribe button. That helps our rankings of our show. It helps us get more, uh, you know, viewers in there. And also, if you hit the like button, that will also improve our uh, rankings. So, uh, please, uh, please hit that subscribe button, and uh, we uh, we hope you enjoy the show tonight. Um, so it's almost like summertime here. I think it was almost. 78 degrees here tonight so it's starting to warm up uh, i've been outside digging today uh, my my tree that fell uh damaged some irrigation pipes uh in the ground in different places so i've been digging holes all over the yard and uh, finding some uh, broken pipes so i've been working on that outside uh i can't do too much when it gets real hot out there though boy and it does get hot down here hey tonight we got rich with us we got alan we got glenn we got Bill with us. Katie uh, uh, will try to join us a little later if she can get home in time. She's working late tonight, so um, let's uh, let's just jump right into it and let's just talk with Rich there from CQ Magazine. How you doing, Rich? I'm doing great. And uh, since we last talked, I had mentioned then I didn't have it yet, but now I do have my official copy of our new shortwave propagation handbook, fourth okay. edition. Okay. It's has a very glossy cover, as you can see by the uh, <laughs> lights shining off it, so it doesn't show up too well on the screen there. But uh, the book is fantastic. Uh, Carl Lutzel Schwab, K9LA, is the lead uh, on this edition of it, along with uh, 
Ted Cohen and 4XX, who was one of the co-authors of the third edition. Um, and uh, they've done a, a fantastic job of fully updating uh, this book to uh, just give you everything you need to know about propagation for the start of cycle 25. Uh, so very happy to have this out and available. It's uh, a really fantastic book and will uh, educate anybody who isn't already an expert about uh, the mechanics of uh, HF propagation and what we still don't know as well, which is quite a bit. Um, April issue has uh, kind of a, our cover has somewhat of a uh, look at the current state of multi-op contesting. I don't know if you can see it very well here with this light, but uh, it's uh, I saw that. K3RA uh, in a socially isolated multi-single at W3LPL with a uh, bottle of a canister of Lysol wipes sitting in the front of the picture there. So <laughs> we, we might get back to normal sometime soon, but it's, it's going to be a long slog, I think. Um, but ham radio has been uh, a great social de-isolator for yeah, uh, the has. past year. It's really been wonderful. So this is being our April issue. We're got rocks in our heads to start with um we start out with uh, well, it was an interesting story and I, I told this somewhat in my editorial um this is a, a kind of an issue that kind of put itself together it told me what it was going to do instead of the other way around that, that happens sometimes and those are usually the best ones that build themselves uh we got a uh, great article from Lisa Roberts, AL6Y, who is a, a protege of Eric Nichols, uh, KL7AJ up in Alaska, on hand grinding a quartz crystal. And I had. All right. Uh, it's a, a very quickly becoming a lost art. Um, and uh, I had said, gee, this would be a, a good article for some issue in the future. And then I got Joe Eisenberg's kit building column called Spotting a Rock. And it's all about the four square QRP group, four state QRP group crystal spotter kit. So I said, well, they've got to go together. And then the issue kind of built from there. Um, so it's, it's good for April to start with rocks in your head. Uh, yeah. We've also got uh, a bunch of, of practical stuff uh, as usual. Um, N2SQW has an article on optimizing on-air practices for FT8. Uh, a lot of people are, are using the mode and not necessarily knowing the best practices for uh, getting the most out of it and transmitting your sequences in the right time frame and things like that. Um, K2AOP has a short but excellent piece on how to accurately measure surface mount resistors. You know, they're so tiny uh, mm -hmm. and not really well marked. Sometimes you need to check and see exactly what the value is on one of these tiny little dots. And uh, he's got a, a great way to do it there. Um, the star of this issue is, of course, the results of the single sideband weekend of the 2020 CQ Worldwide DX contest. Just like every other 
contest in 2020. We had record participation um, and uh, really, really cool um, contest, even though the, we're at the bottom of the sunspot cycle. As usual, the CQ Worldwide makes its own propagation, and there was uh, plenty of uh, DX to be had. Also an April fixture is Professor Emil Heisseluft, who joins us every year. And his article this year is on, on the ask on the cover, has he gone mad? His article is on a mosquito aerial denial system, or MAD and how hams can help with monitoring and reporting progress. Oh, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, hey, what is that? A mosquito what? Mosquito aerial denial system. It's, it's revealed the role of the Lawton Institute in global efforts to eradicate malaria oh, okay. and how hams can help with monitoring and reporting progress. And it's a, a tiny laser system that confuses the mosquitoes um, hmm. and then zaps them. Um, so you got to read it to really yeah. fully appreciate it. <laughs> but, you know, Professor Heisseluft is always, always ahead of his time. And in fact, we didn't have space in the issue this month. So we have this posted on our web <clears throat> back in 19. When was this? 1994. Professor Heisseluft wrote an article on ionospheric propagation possible on Mars. And it was complete science fiction at the time. Mm -hmm. And as anybody who has been monitoring these things knows, it is complete science fact now. Um, NASA figured it out back in about 2002. They published a book on uh, propagation on and around Mars. But this was seven years after Professor Heiseluft, and of course we have our <clears throat> new Mars rover um, bouncing around on the planet, and uh, hams copying signals from satellites in Mars orbit. So once again, Professor Heiseluft was well ahead of his time. So if you go to our website and uh, click on the highlights of this issue, or the uh, CQ Overtime link, you should be able to link to the 1994 article there. Um, getting a little more serious. Excuse me one second. My voice seems to be running away someplace. Must be all those rocks in my head. Hmm. Um, in our emergency communications column this month, um, Stan Broadway and 8BHL, it gives us a snapshot on the state of MCOM today. He does a um, survey of section emergency coordinators around the country to see what they feel is uh, the current role of ham radio in the emergency communications landscape. Um, also in that same theme of emergency communications, Learning Curve Editor KO0Z has a piece on weather nets. And uh, then we re return to a bit of Aprilness with uh, KL7AJ's Analog Adventures on Oscilloscopes, which he has appropriately titled Oscilloscope. Um, but it is a serious article. Um, QRP editor, KASMA, takes a second look at the Sabertooth antenna and uh, does some, uh, brings us some analysis on its performance. It's uh, quite good in its operation. Um, 
in our medium and low frequency operating column, KB5NJD offers some thoughts on using and protecting a receive antenna port on a modern transmitter, transceiver. Uh, a lot of times if you're operating in the low bands, you're going to be using a external, a separate receive antenna from your transmit antenna, and you got to be able to uh, protect the receive side when you're transmitting. And uh, on the topic of antennas, antennas editor, WA5VJB, gets into a little bit of antenna theory with a piece on antenna temperature, which is really quite fascinating. Most of us have not uh, really thought about antenna temperature. Um, some of you, if you're into lighting and stuff, know about color temperature. And uh, it's really quite similar, just uh, different frequencies. So it's a very interesting piece. Uh, we have our first column by our new VHF Plus editor, Trent Fleming, and for DTF, he introduces himself. And we've got a uh, update on the new beacon on St. Helena Island in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. To That's uh, on two meters to alert people, mostly in South America and South Africa, of possible transatlantic openings on two meters. Think about the ducts that form between uh, the west coast of the U.S. and Hawaii. And uh, it's quite possible that there are similar ones uh, out there. And this beacon is going to help people figure that out and be alert to them. Um, our awards editor, KI4KWR, takes us on a starting an awards journey. Um, how uh, one young ham's first few certificates have led to a lifetime of award hunting. Really fun story. In uh, our contesting column, N3QE discusses the balance between QSOs and multipliers. If you're into contesting at all, you know that your score is generally a mix of the number of contacts you make and the number of multipliers you get. They vary from contest to contest. In the CQ Worldwide, it's a zone or a country. Um, in uh, VHF contests, it tends to be a grid square. And then you, so you multiply your contact points times the number of multipliers to get your final score. And a big part of contesting strategy is getting the balance right between the number of contacts and the number of multipliers. And uh, that's what Tim is writing about this month. And finally, in our propagation column, um, NW7US reports that uh, cycle 25 is officially official. The uh, powers that be have declared that uh, we hit solar minimum in December of 2019. So you may not realize it, but we're already a year and a half into cycle 25 without even knowing it. Uh, so we're starting to see signs of it on the air, though, which is good. So that's basically... Uh, what we've got coming up in the April issue of CQ, we have our spring fever promotion going on right now. So if you want to sign up for one, two, three years of CQ and uh, get all this great stuff in your mailbox or your inbox every month, check out our website at www.cq-amateur-radio.com. And you can take advantage of our Spring Fever special for both the print and the digital editions. And uh, also, you can order a copy of the fourth edition of the CQ Shortwave Propagation Handbook. 
which uh, right. is definitely a worthwhile investment. Just just for the cover alone, it's worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> so. There's a, some sunspots on that cover right there. Yes, indeed. Yeah. That's right. So we made sure we had sunspots on the cover. So yeah, there's uh man, there's some neat stuff in your uh, magazine this month. Uh, you know, grinding quartz crystals. Uh, we've talked about that a number of times. When we had uh, Martin on here back in the old days when, when you know, all of us new novices only had one or two crystals, and you want to change the frequency, we would grind them down or use toothpaste on them, or or you know, to change the frequency one way, you could put pencil lead on them, and it, the other way, you could grind them down and polish them down with uh, toothpaste. I think is one way that mm-hmm. that we did, but that was like many many years ago. I've done the pencil lead technique yeah. many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I need to. Uh, I, I I really want to read that article about reading the uh, the uh, small SMD resistors too, because uh, you know I, I'm I'm building so much over here with the with the little SMD parts, and when I when I lose one on the workbench, you're right, they're not marked where you can look at them and, and read the color code or anything like that. So. And it's really hard to put your uh, two probes of your meter on a chip that's about the size of a gnat. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's tough there. It goes it goes flying across the room, and the, the yeah. resistor is either infinite because it's not there anymore, or it's shorted because your probes have touched each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I've shot several across the room, like a, a little miniature tiddlywink. I usually, I, the ones I shoot across, Bill, are usually the, the SI-5351s or whatever, and uh, I can never the find them. The parts, yeah. I, I can never find them, man. I can never find them. Yeah. Well, Rich, hey, thanks, man, for coming in and sh- talking about CQ tonight, man. And feel free to stay with us uh, for the rest of the show and, and join in wherever you want to, okay? Okay, I just oh. wanted to say one thing about the crystal grinding. When a really cool side to the side story to the side story um in uh, lisa's article she references an old world war ii vintage uh newsreel type film that's on youtube about how crystals were manufactured back in world war ii and it turns out that this movie was produced and the crystals too were produced at reeves sound laboratories in new york city and that was owned by Buzz Reeves, uh, K2N2AA, or actually he was K2GL, I'm sorry. Uh, N2AA was a call sign used frequently at his station, but he had one of the first contest superstations up in Tuxedo Park, New York. Yeah. Uh, big multi-multi operation. So uh, you ham radio is a small world, even across the decades. So uh, it's it was a really cool connection, a great film to watch, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much, man. My pleasure. All right. See you again next month. All right. And you know, guys, I started the show off tonight, and I, I, I must be losing it. I didn't even go around the room and say hello to everybody. So let's just say hello, man. Hey, hey, uh, uh, Glenn. Hello, Glenn. How you doing? Hey, I'm hanging in there. I uh, wanted to catch Rich real quick before he left if he was going to leave. Uh, talking about the mosquito tracker. There is actually a real one that they have determined the the frequency of the mosquito wing beats is unique, and they actually have a later laser system that tracks based on the sound of the wing beats and can drop them at about thirty feet. Or well, I think that's a good Arduino video project. of the wings getting charred by the laser. 
I think that's a good uh, Arduino project. Can you start on that, Glenn? And we'll we'll do that on a show one night. <laughs> yeah, I've got to give me that propagation handbook. That looks yeah. that looks like a lot of fun. All right. Well, well here's. Oh, I'm sorry. You got something I don't else? Know if you can see. Here's a picture of the uh, what the mosquito sees in uh, <laughs> the. Uh, now I wonder. I wonder there. how do they know what a mosquito sees? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the same way that cat does it show. Yeah, yeah. You know, the last thing that mosquito sees is a bright light. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Tom, uh, you just need a little metal aluminum hat with tiny little probes, just like they do with that cat that and the clothes of your show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, hey, let's jump over to Alan. Alan, hello, Alan. Hello, everybody. Alan, there'll be a two AEW from. Uh, I guess it's pretty warm, New Jersey. I guess it's pretty warm up by you there too, Rich. But uh, had a nice couple of days here, and a pretty warm weekend. And uh, I guess it got close to seventy degrees today here, although I was uh, stuck inside uh, working all day. But uh, anyway, good to be here. We will uh, have a little tech tips we can talk about uh, uh, later looking, on. Uh, looking forward to that. So uh, we'll, we'll take care of that. But uh, otherwise, uh, doing okay. Good so to be here. Let me just say this to all of our remotes. You can see your picture coming back to you. If you can kindly adjust your body to be centered in the picture a little bit, I don't know what you okay. might have to do. See, I guess I had to go. You have to go down a little lower there. Uh, a little lower, okay. Yeah, there right. you go. There you you go. I the could probably do a little something. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I could probably make some adjustments, but we'll, 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 we'll work it out here. Okay, okay. very good. All right. And, uh, so when, we, you, when you pull yourself down, we can get a better view of the gigantor hand key behind yeah so oh yeah that's here. uh that's an old uh jj bunnell 1929 key that's uh one i use yeah. most of the time that's my favorite kind of key right there yeah good old straight key you'll pound that fist yeah. <laughs> all right all right so let's uh let's uh let's move on hopefully katie will join us in a little while everybody i know uh there ain't hey tom i got a quick it. comment yeah, about ahead, the ahead, service mount parts that go missing uh -huh. uh, and then you can never find. Yeah, I have a surefire way of finding the ones, particularly ones with leads on them. Yeah, you know, like uh, integrated circuits with yeah. little sharp ends to it. Well, you All you have to do is walk around your solder bench area in bare feet, and yeah, you will find. Yeah, yeah, that that'll do it. That'll do it too. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. You know, it's just amazing how you can take those little bitty parts, and I'm holding with those tweezers, and then it, it's it's like it shoots out of there like a like a rifle goes off, man. I mean, you know, it doesn't drop; it shoots, and I don't know where it goes, man. It might go three or four feet. And, if uh, I can vacuum my my solder room, my workbench area, I bet I'd have enough parts to build a whole uh, yeah. little miniature QRP radio. Probably, uh, probably would, but then you're going to need to check all those parts to see what they are. You know, yeah. You know what we used to do in the day was actually put a cloth in front of the vacuum cleaner head. If yeah. you're trying to find a, a tiny part you can't find, and it, the cloth will generally catch it for you. That's you know a good what? idea. You know, you know. Hey, Glenn, you, you know, on that same line. Uh, I had a person lose a contact lens in my swimming pool one time. And we used to vacuum hose with, uh, you know, a strainer or cloth over it. And we found that, we found the uh, lens that was in that's the water. That, that was, you know, that's like a needle in a haystack, man. Absolutely. Yeah. 
All right. Well, hey, Alan, let's talk about uh, let's talk about operating split. I think there's a couple different ways, you know, that you can do that. But yeah, so, what do you want to tell yeah, us? It was just one of these interesting topics because uh, there's a couple uh, certain rigs have got certain tricks uh, to to operating split. So I thought it might be a fun topic. Um, if you give me the opportunity to share, you I can uh, bring up to. a couple of things. Looks like Rich is uh, waving goodbye there, so uh, we'll say see you later there, Rich. And uh, if you let me, okay, you should, let's, you let should me be able to share. I turned that on before you guys came. Ah, okay, so let's uh, let's start off with sharing this document here. You should be able to see that, okay? Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about split. I thought before we get into operating HF split, which is what I really wanted to talk about, I, I thought we'd just do a little bit of background. And uh, and say, well, you know, what is operating split? Well, well, split is really just another name for duplex, operating duplex. And duplex simply means that you're transmitting and receiving on different frequencies. Okay. Um, and, you know, we, we've all you know, done some of this uh, probably without even thinking about it. Uh, th there are two different types of duplex. There's at least as there's full duplex, and that's where... You transmit and receive on different frequencies simultaneously, and we'll talk about uh, things that do that. And then, uh, and then there's half duplex where you transmit and receive on different frequencies, but one at a time. And uh, you know, probably the most common applications for duplex operation you know, that we'll run across, especially as new hams, is operating through repeaters. Right? Now, on a repeater, you set up your little handheld or whatever to transmit on the input frequency to the repeater. And then the, the repeater retransmits you back out simultaneously on its output frequency. Uh, so the repeater itself is operating in full duplex mode, whereas the little handhelds that you're using to talk to your buddy at the other end of the, the line there, you're both running half duplex. Okay. So that's a, you know one form of essentially a split operation uh, is, is just using repeaters. And similarly, those repeaters in the sky and the amateur radio satellites are also running duplex. Uh, and in most cases, these amateur radio satellites are a little different than repeaters. Uh, and one important fact in that repeaters are generally always on in the same frequency band, like it's a two meter repeater or it's a you know, 70 centimeter repeater. And you've got you know, the, the offset frequency is just a small amount of frequencies, you know, 600K for, uh, for two meters, you know, five meg for 440, et cetera. The satellites will generally operate on different bands. Uh, oftentimes VHF and UHF uh, for uplink and downlink or vice versa. And in some cases, it might be a little bit different than that. So it's still a duplex operation, but it's actually duplex across multiple bands. And what that means is oftentimes uh, the radios that you're using to work satellites, can often actually, the radios themselves can actually, in some cases, operate in full duplex. So you'd be able to hear how well you're getting into the satellite. Uh, type of thing. Um, so that can be handy in operating uh, split with satellites. So just some interesting things uh, for operating split uh, that I thought would be an introduction. But what I really wanted to kind of talk more about was operating split uh, with HF. Okay. Now the vast majority of HF operation is simplex, whether you're operating, whether no matter what mode you're in, whether it's single sideband, CW, or, or any of the digital modes or anything else, it's typically simplex. You're, you're transmitting and receiving on the same frequency. Now, occasionally there are, you know, op conditions where you might want to operate um, uh, split. Okay. And operate different frequencies. Now, 
on HF, instead of calling it duplex, we call it split. It's just a, a naming convention. So, uh, so it's just called operating split. So where would you run across this? It's usually when you're operating or trying to work that rare or desired DX station, right? Anything that's going to generate a pileup, right? Or maybe any time that Katie gets on the air, right? People want to work her. She's got to start working split so that uh, she doesn't generate too much of a pileup. But uh, so, um, so what? What it's, if you if this rare DX was operating simplex? All the stations that are calling it are going to be interfering and sitting on top of the same frequency the DX is trying to make calls out on, and oftentimes even drowning out the guy trying to make calls. So oftentimes he'll he'll listen on a different frequency and announce that and say, okay, I'm listening up, or I'm listening up five, or I'm listening up five to ten, or something like that. And what that does is it takes all of the stations that are calling him, all the stations in the pileup, and gets them off of the frequency that the DX is making his call on. So it gives you at least you the ability to hear the DX station, to hear when he's calling and when he's found somebody, uh, and then also potentially gives the DX station a better chance of trying to, to hear people because they might be able to spread them out. So graphically, it kind of looks a little bit like this. Let's say you've got that, uh, you know, Scarborough Reef or whatever calling there on fourteen one ninety five upper sideband. So I'm just kind of showing kind of where that sits with respect to the suppressed carrier frequency. And you might say he's listening up five to ten, and that means he's listening up, you know, five to ten kilohertz above his calling frequency. So that tends to spread out all the stations that may be calling him. So while he's making his call. And, uh, and he lets go and listens for people calling him back, he can tune around within this range and try to find somebody to work. So it spreads everybody out and makes it a bit more successful in trying to pick out a call to, to, to work. So this is oftentimes what those rare DX stations and the DX expeditions are going to do. And when they say they're listening up five or list, listening up five to 10 or five to 15, they're referring to how far up above or below uh, their current transmit frequency, they're actually going to be listening and will generally give you a range. Sometimes it's just they're just listening up five and you're just going to be very close to five kilohertz above, for example. Uh, sometimes they might give you an actual range. Depending on how popular the station is and how many stations are calling, you may try to spread out those stations to make it easier for him to copy. But that's really kind of what it means. Now, of course, on the, our VHF and UHF rigs for operating through repeaters, um, they kind of set themselves up for the offset operation, for the duplex operation. But on HF rigs, you've actually got to set it up yourself. Okay. So now most rigs um, give, you know, have some facilities to allow you to operate split on HF. Uh, in most cases, they'll have two VFOs for this purpose. And you'd use one of the VFOs as your receive frequency, so you're going to set that to the transmit frequency that that DX is running. And then the other VFO, you'd set that to where you're going to transmit, where you want the DX to hear you. And then you'd set the rig into a split mode. Oftentimes, it's actually a button that says split. On some rigs, it's just a selection of the two VFOs and how you set it up. Uh, so that you would then, when you key the transmitter, it, uh, it will transmit on VFO uh, B, for example. And then when you let go, it listens on VFO A. So again, it's going to vary by rig. I'm actually going to show you a short little video on one of my rigs to show you how it's set up on that one in a moment. Okay. But your keys to success in doing this is learn the controls on your rig. Learn how to switch back and forth between them. And, uh, and also, there may be some tricks. I'm going to show you a little trick on my rig that makes it easy to get even more successful in doing this. 
because really what you want to do to have the most success is not only to know how to set up the rig and set up the, both those uh, frequencies and VFOs properly, but also it really is helpful to try to figure out where the DX station is listening, right? Because he says he's listening five to 10 up, but he's only going to listen to one station at a time. So what that means is when he calls his CQ and he lets go and he's listening five to 10 up, he's tuning around somewhere in this region where he's told you he's listening. And what the ideal thing for you to do is to try to fight, figure out who it is that he just worked, because then you know exactly where he's listening. So as soon as he's done with that contact, you can drop your call right in that, that same frequency before he has a chance to tune around somewhere else. So it really is helpful to listen, try to figure out where he's hearing and what station he's working so you know what portion of uh, the band he's actually listening to. So some rigs actually make this, uh, give you some features help with this. Uh, some of the more modern rigs, most of the, st the stuff that's out there now actually have dual receivers. So you can actually listen to both frequency ranges at the same time. So you could have one receiver set up to listen to when the DX is calling, have the other receiver set up to tune around to the frequency he's listening to. So as soon as he's finished calling, you can just dial the other VFO back and forth to see if you can hear who he's working. Because right, once he's, he says a station, you know who he's working, you know there's only going to be hopefully just one guy there that, uh, that that's going back to him, and you might be able to go find him. Now, obviously, with the newer rigs with the waterfall displays and things like that, sometimes can make it even easier because you might be able to see him. Now, of course, there's always that chance that you're not geographically in the right place to be able to hear the station that the DX is working, but uh, that's the, that's the game you play. But being able to try to tune around to see who he's hearing is really your key to success. If you don't have the dual receiver, okay, because many rigs don't have that, um, some have um, a separate button to momentarily swap the VFOs. Like on, on some of the Kenwood rigs, it was called TF set or transmit frequency set. Or in some rigs, it might be called offset or swap or just or just touching the split or or reversing a, you know, the A and B VFOs. You've really got to learn your rig to figure out what it is. And what's really handy, a lot of these rigs have put some thought into how you might be using it this way. Uh, again, the, the video I'm going to show you, what I'm able to do is lock one of the VFOs. Like if I set my, my frequency that I'm listening to, I can lock that VFO. So even if I touch or spin the VFO knob, that frequency won't change. But if I momentarily switch over to the other VFO, I can tune that one. So even if I'm tuning that back and forth and I let go of that TF set button, even if the VFO knob is still spinning a little bit from inertia, it's not going to change where I'm listening. So that could really be handy um, in trying to, trying to listen for who the DX is hearing. So I'm going to show you a quick little video clip of how I do this on my uh, TS-870 here. So if I go and change, let me go and change my share here to this little video clip here. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna have the audio on on this. I'm just gonna kind of narrate through it. So this is a TS, a Kenwood TS-870. In this case, the VFO uh, buttons are right here. So there's a receive VFO and a transmit VFO. That's A, B, and then memory. So, th so there's essentially six buttons here. So you can choose which VFO is set up to um, receive, which one is set up to transmit. The larger buttons here show up in the center. So right now, the receive VFO is set to 14195. Let me start playing this. 
So we can see that uh, if I hit the A, B, A equals B button, that's going to make both the A and B VFOs have the same frequency. And let me pause it for a second. What I also then did is I changed the transmit uh, VFO. I just knocked it down to B. So it's still showing 14195 because I equalized the two. Now I'm going over and what I'm doing is I'm touching the frequency lock button. The frequency lock button will lock the A VFO, the receive VFO, so that won't change. So now that that's locked, okay, you can see the lock right here. Now if I touch the, the button I'm touching right now with, with, with my index finger is the transmit frequency set. And if I push and hold that while spinning the VFO knob, you can see I can actually change. That's my transmit frequency. So now my transmit frequency changed. You notice when I let go of the button, still spinning the knob didn't change the receive frequency. So it's a handy way. It also works with the multi-function the multi knob to go incrementally, in this case, a kilohertz, uh, you know, a kilohertz at a time. Let me back up here a little bit. So uh, you'll notice I, I, I touched the, uh, the transmit frequency set with one finger, and I'm turning the multi-channel knob. You can see I'm moving in one kilohertz steps, again, without changing my transmit frequency. So again, different rigs will have different uh, you know, helping uh, you know, features and capabilities to enable you to operate this way in terms of setting up a receive frequency and being able to monitor your transmit frequency to hear who the DX is running and who he's operating with so that uh, you can then pounce on him <laughs> right after uh, the, the guy's finished with his call. But again, different rigs operate different ways. Some of them just give you a simple switch. Some of them give you an offset frequency to use. Um, and they'll have different names for the buttons and things like that. But uh, but it's worth it, especially as we're coming up on cycle 25, as Rich has told us, we're going to start seeing some de-expeditions out there, some some rare stations coming out, some pileups generated when Katie gets on the air, et cetera. Uh, you're going to want to uh, you know learn how to operate split and, and do it efficiently uh, to go uh, snag that rare DX station. So that was just a, an interesting topic. I might wind up actually making a video about this uh, for my channel, but uh, yeah, I just thought that might have been an interesting topic that, uh, especially as we're coming up on this new cycle, we might have some new HF operators and uh, we'll wonder, what's that guy talking about when he says he's listening up five or listening down five? Uh, that's what it's all about. Well, you know, as, as you mentioned, different rigs are a little bit different. You know, uh, I've got, Kenwood rigs here that are similar to yours, and I've got uh, I've got the ICOM. Uh, some radios have uh, RIT, RIT, or a, I guess. Um, yeah, you, some, you yeah actually, some of them you can adjust the RIT far enough to get that far, right. but some of them you can't, right? Yeah, so. yeah. I was just playing with mine today, and uh, I can take that that RIT, and I can go a long ways with it. So, but normally I just set up the two VFOs, one for transmit, one to receive, but. Uh, you know, a simple way is to use the RIT button, the yeah. RIT button. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and like I said, some rigs, like I said, some will only adjust the RIT a few kilohertz either way. Some of them, like you said, will go a whole lot yeah. further. But uh, take a look, and, and you know, your rig might offer you a couple of different options. So uh, figure out which one is going to work best for you and, uh, and practice with it a little bit, especially practice being able to quickly make an adjustment on your transmit frequency without affecting the receive frequency. Uh, that, that'll really help you to, uh, to kind of pounce right on top of where that DX happens to be listening at that instant in time. All right. Well, there's uh, been a lot of discussion in the chat room about this. Uh, I think you, you uh, just 
it hit it right on the head there. There's a lot of people that were talking about how good this presentation is. So, you know, you think something as simple as split frequency is real simple, but there's a lot to it. And, and you got to kind of learn your rig, learn what to do, and take the pointers like you had just mentioned, Alan, and um, you'll be real successful with it. Well, I appreciate that. Like I said, it was, it's, a, it's one of those things I remember learning, you know, 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, the, the, the more you, you know, the more you operate, the more you get a new rig, it's a whole new set of features. You know, some of these new rigs with the dual receivers and the waterfall displays tend to uh, spoil you a little bit because uh, we didn't have this stuff 20 years ago. And we had to kind of get more efficient in, in how we did things kind of manually. Yeah. So, um you know, I'm always a proponent of anything that requires thought is usually a good thing. That's why I've got my analog voltmeters and things like that. I'm, yeah. I'm a proponent of things that require thought because uh, that uh, keeps your keeps your brain sharp. And uh, and learning how to do this on some of these older rigs requires a little bit of thought, but uh, good stuff. So you mentioned satellite work earlier. Of course, that is split or actually it's on two different bands. And yep. uh, it's good. It's best if you can do full duplex. That way you can hear your own signal come back and know if you're getting into the satellite or not. Uh, it's possible to work satellite without working a, a full duplex, but... Uh, yeah, I guess most of the... Yeah. A lot of people do satellite work with HTs, and most yeah. of the HTs can't work full duplex like that, but most of the base you know, satellite rigs, um, you know, certainly can do that. And, you know, oftentimes you might have to use uh, headphones or something like that. So you don't get any feedback and that type of thing. But uh, yeah. if you can do it, that's good. Uh, personally, I, I haven't had an opportunity to operate satellites yet, but uh, I don't have a rig here that's capable of doing that. But that's uh, another another thing on my list of things to do. In the well, future. a lot of people, too, will use two handy talkies, you know, one on each frequency, and uh, that works out uh, well for them. And, Okay. Man, I tell you what, hey, some of the handy talkies are getting really cheap, $19 out there. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah isn't that something? <laughs> Buy you two $19 uh, handy talkies and you got your satellite yeah, I, system. I got no excuses, right? <laughs> yeah, no excuses, man. If you can't get one, I'll send you one. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, cool. There's a, bit, a, lot of, a lot of discussion in the chat room about it. And uh, everybody, uh, remember... Go to uh, Alan's web uh, or his uh, YouTube channel, uh, W2AEW, and uh, you'll probably see a lot of videos just, lo just like the one you just uh, heard uh, from uh, Alan. All right, well, we got three or four more things we want to discuss here tonight. I've got some really exciting things I'm going to be working on here and I want to work on. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody just jump in. It's going to be a free-for-all the next uh, hour. And uh, everybody participate if you want to. So well, we'll be back in one second. And, uh, again, if you got any uh, questions there for uh, Alan, uh, put them in the chat room now. And I'm sure Alan's watching the chat room. All right. We'll be back in just a minute, guys. The Great Outdoors are calling. Get outside and under the stars with one of ICOM's ultimate SDR transceivers. The IC705 is a perfect transceiver for hams who enjoy both the great indoors and the outdoors. It's a perfect QRP companion. The base station has features and functionality at the tip of your fingers and a portable package. And it covers HF 6 meters, 2 meters, and 70 centimeters. And guess what? It weighs in at just under 2 pounds. It has a 4.3 inch touchscreen and it's got a live band scope and waterfall. It'll run 5 watts with a BP272 or 10 watts on 13.8 volts DC. It runs all modes, including D-Star. 
The speaker microphone comes standard. The perfect accessory for the 705 is the LC192 backpack. It has a special compartment for your IC705 and room for all your accessories. Create your own band opening with the IC9700. This transceiver radio brings direct sampling to the UHF VHF weak signal world. This all mode transceiver is loaded with innovative features that are just sure to keep you busy. It has a 4.3 inch color touchscreen and spectroscope and waterfall. It has smooth satellite operation with 99 satellite channels and it's full duplex operation in satellite mode. Heard it, worked it, and logged it with ICOM 7300. It's a high performance, innovative HF transceiver with a compact design that will far exceed your expectations. This innovative HF transistor digitizes the RF before various receiver stages to reduce the generated inherent noise in different IF stages. The IC7300 is the radio that changed the way of entry-level HF. Visit www.icomamerica/amateur for more information on ICOM radios. LDG Electronics provides state-of-the-art antenna tuners for every amateur need. From QRP to QRO, fixed stations, portable and remote, an LDG tuner will match your radio to your antenna using our lightning-fast, proprietary tuning algorithms. LDG is a family-owned and operated company dedicated to bringing innovative, quality products to the amateur market. All LDG products Support is only a phone call or email away. We're always here to help you. Visit us on the web at ldgelectronics.com. All right, and we are back. And, uh, man, got a lot to talk about tonight. Oh, gee. But let's talk first. Let's talk first. Hey, Glenn, we uh, we we did the KA6 LMS special event station from here, uh, what, a week and a half ago or whatever it was. Saturday, yeah, a week and a half lost, ago. I uh, lost track of time here. But, uh, man, uh, let's see. I got a, I got a video that uh, one of our viewers uh, sent in. Let's just play it, and then we'll talk a little about it. Uh, let me see. This should be it right here. This is from our friend Larry. You remember working Larry? Yeah. Um, let's see what's going to happen here. Let's see. Skip ahead. There we go. Okay. So uh, here we go. Let me get uh, Larry in here. This is from uh, Larry, and uh, he's a follower of our show, and he he uh, made a contact with us. So here we go. K six LMS. Last Man Standing special event stations are on the air right now, and I'm going to try to work Glenn and Tom here operating from W5KUB station. And we are live streaming on YouTube, W5KUB, W5KUB.com, and we are just having an absolute blast. This is KA6 LMS Stroke 4 CQ. Whiskey Delta Zero Alpha Kilo X ray. Whiskey Delta Zero Alpha Kilo X-Ray, Larry in Minnesota. Yes, uh, this is Larry. I am watching you on YouTube. Uh, 
Uh, Roger, Roger, having a lot of fun here today, so thanks for the contact. Uh, you're a little bit down in the noise, but I'm copying you 100%. Roger, yeah. Okay, 7-3 and good luck there, WD-0-A-K-X. All right, that was, uh, that was, one of, that was uh, Larry up here in Minnesota. He sent us the... Uh, Sent us the, uh, the little video clip there. I thought it was kind of neat. Uh, well, Glenn, why don't you talk about K6LMS? Tell them uh, your experience there. I'm going to go get a piece of papers in the office. It's got some information on it. So let me put you on full screen. And you just, uh, uh, hey, tell them what it was like, man, operating here. <laughs> um, I wish that we had seen Alan's split frequency operation video first. Uh, you guys would not believe the depth of the pileups. No kidding. Oh, that's great. It was, uh, I mean, I love contests. I love pileups. I love the Mississippi QSO party. And these pileups were beyond any of that. And it was so funny because, I mean, I am literally writing calls down as fast as I can so that Tom can log them so he could fall behind. And Tom basically said that his brain got tired what listening to me we work <laughs> i don't i've never been on the receiving end of a pileup i've been in the pileup and with just a uh, 100 watts and a really low antenna i've been buried in the pileup but i've never been on the receiving end of a pileup so that's got to be fun oh it was just an absolute blast now i know what katie feels like but it <laughs> <was> <laughs> every time she gets on the air right every time but now it was just so fun because there was probably 10 plus calls in the pileup at any given time. And I was able, you know, if I would catch a letter or two of multiple calls, I would be writing them down on separate lines so that I could quickly step through without having to call again. Did you have and, to get to the point where you started just calling people by number, saying call area zero, call area one, et cetera? Well, we never got that way, but you know, I like that technique because I actually use that technique when I was, uh, playing with the micro bid X on the review and got me a, a couple states in their QSO party. Okay. Very good. But that's, that is a nice technique as well. Yeah. But no, we, we just, you know, took them as they came. And, uh, I was always listening for QRP or mobile stations. Love to give those contacts out. Sure. And, uh, but I mean, I mean, I think we got on the air about one o'clock and I had to leave at six because we had severe weather rolling in and i didn't want to be on the road during that okay so so yeah. let me let me tell you guys is, is my mic working test one two the audio looks a little yeah. funny you're good you're good yeah oh uh, so i'll let glenn do all the talking i did the logging but i'll tell you man i was out of breath glenn made so many calls i was getting out of breath um my throat was getting dry uh, we did on the ICOM, we do have memories, a voice recorder memories, and we actually put in, uh, you know, the CQ for the special event station. And uh, I could tell, well, I get Glenn to punch that button, and I could tell, you know, after a few hours, there's a difference between that recorded <laughs> voice and the voice that he was caught using when he would use his own voice. There was a big difference. But, you know, Tom, here's the scary part. 
I was still running at a leisurely pace. I never really went flat out because I knew I wouldn't last five hours going full speed. I would say I was probably about three quarters speed. But uh, yeah, I mean, you you were constantly typing. I don't think you had a spare minute. You know, you you were just typing as fast as you could to get them logged. What was uh, what was your final tally? How many stations did you work? I think I got 350, 375, something like that, Tom. Yeah, I think that afternoon we had three to 400 somewhere that uh, few hours. I think uh, uh, when you look at numbers, I think uh, K6LMS reported it did about 60,000 contacts, uh, 130 countries. I don't have the stats in front of me here. Uh, yeah, got, it was it was quite an impressive tally that all the stations got. All right, I've got some information here. I know people are wanting QSL cards and all that, and uh, they, you know it seems a little be a little confusion about that. But you do not need to submit your logs. Uh, all you know, all the uh, KA six LMS stations logged all their contacts. They were all entered into a database. Um, any number of, of contacts quali qualifies you for a certificate, any number. If you just work one station, you can still get a certificate. Uh, certificates should be available for download by May 15th, so it's going to take a while. You do not need a staged contact to get a clean sweep. Uh, please do not send a QSL card request unless you made a staged contact. And uh, I think the stage operated on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, for more information, guys, all this is on their website. You can go to www.gsbarc.org slash LMS. Just do a search for K6LMS and it'll, it'll uh, get you to their website. But we had a lot of fun uh, doing that, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, um, maybe in the future what the club does. I'm sure the club station will continue as K6LMS. Um, maybe, maybe throughout the years they'll have some special events uh, for, you know, the show that has uh, now gone off. The show will be in syndication, I'm sure, and... Uh, uh, but it won't be live. But, uh, man, I'm, I'm tired. I'm out of breath just thinking about all those contacts that Glenn made. I'm ready to do it again. I mean, that mm, was man. just fun. Yeah, I was ready to take a break. What were you, what were you guys running? What was equipment-wise, power, antennas, we're running, things like uh, that? We're, we're, we're running, running the uh, ICOM 7610. We're running uh, a 40-meter extended double zip. And we were running about probably about 1300 watts okay yeah that's one of the few times i've ever run with a lead foot like that so we stayed on 40 predominantly yeah we, we went to 20, 20 got nothing. We, we went to 20 meters and tried it but we I, we almost didn't even make a single contact on 20 so we went back to 40. 40 was a pretty hopping band that day actually yeah 40 was doing real good all right yeah. well guys the special event's over, but hey, we had fun doing it, and uh, yeah, we did. There's uh, there's all kinds of videos out there. Check them out. 
Uh, let's see. Um, talking about nets, if there's anybody out there that wants to help us in the show call a net, we would love to have you join our team. I'm calling a 40-meter net every Tuesday now, and uh, it pressures me for time before the show. So I'm looking for people that, you know, have a decent signal and can get on there and call a, maybe a 40-meter net, maybe a 20-meter net. We've been limiting this to four, uh, 40 meters, and so there's many people, you know, further out that can't get back to us. So if you're interested in calling a roundtable net uh, and being part of the show here, uh, shoot me an email, and uh, I'm even looking for a DMR person that can call a DMR net. We had a person that volunteered. He wanted to do it, but he can't get his DMR working. He's been working on it for quite a while. So uh, we've got our own talk channel, talk group on uh, uh, for Amateur Radio Roundtable. So um, if you're a DMR guy or you're an HF guy, we'd love to have you uh, join us uh, as a as a uh, net control operator for us. All right. Um, let's see. Anything else? Uh, anything else, uh, Glenn? That we we want to mention about the uh, special event? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, like I say, it was it was just fun. I mean, from the minute we got on, it was pile up the whole rest of the it way. It was fun, that's for sure. Um, I wanted to mention something. Yeah. Uh, when I was trying to work all the uh, special stations, uh, the uh, the W6M and the, I mean, the K6M and k 6 L and S and L and all the other ones. Um, almost all of them were doing split operations, just like uh, with really. So uh, I got all to see that happening us. in real time. All except us. <laughs> you, you just let everybody. I was pile hey, I was just a logger. That it's Glenn's problem that we didn't operate split. But we I was had on some, a rig that I didn't know, and Alan said, "Know your we, rig." We we had we had some pileups for sure. Let's see. We didn't do any echo link, uh, although there were contacts. Uh, the special event was on echo link and D star and and uh, those things. So. So just stand by. Uh, May 15th, uh, you should be able to download a certificate, and it'll be a download. Uh, you're not going to get a QSL card unless you work the the, uh, the studio direct on that Saturday. All right. Well, well I want to talk a minute about W5KB. Bill, which one did we just lose? Was it 25 or 26? It was uh, that was 26. Oh, man, I can't keep up with them anymore, man. I can't keep up with them. 26. We lost 26. Hey, we had a perfect flight. And this, uh, I'm going to tell you what 26 was all about here. Um, 26 was kind of an experimental balloon made out of a, a tubular polyethylene. But it was very heavy, very heavy and very long. And uh, it took a lot of gas. But... It uh, was capable of lifting a lot of weight. Uh, I've got a video here. I want to show you the launch. The launch was beautiful. We thought we were in really good shape because it went up to float altitude, and it stabilized there at float altitude, and it looked like it was doing good until it went into the darkness. So um, 
I'm going to show you the uh, the take the balloon and the takeoff. It looked pretty good. This, in fact, I think this one looks better than any balloon launch we've done. So here we go. Here. I had this thing in my hand like that, and uh, only had one balloon. It looked around, we couldn't find it, and <laughs> in the air, it came off my arm. This is a pretty big balloon. In fact, it was so big we had to take a shovel and beat it into the back of the truck there. You can see how we did the ends. The ends are tie wrapped. So I'm out trying to get the, uh, before we get too many people uh, looking and what's going on, I'm out trying to get the tracker antennas unwound. Uh, it's going to bring the balloon out. You sure have a good launch site there. Yeah, we can. We have access to that lot from any any of the corners. So depending on which way the wind's blowing, we can go either either direction. You know. So we're about to uh, about to about to lift off here. How much did that balloon itself weigh? That balloon itself was 450 grams. Wow, that's four times heavier than the SPS 13. That's right. And it, so it, it, it took four times more gas, but it will lift four times more weight. Everything's bigger. Everything's bigger. Had a little bit of wind there. There was some wind. I was a little concerned about that. Uh, but you'll see the launch actually went off pretty well here. Uh, usually, man, when we do the SBS, the wind is a, a killer for us. So where do you tie the ends off just like a candy wrapper? You just wrap yeah, the we, we just the twist the ends up and we put uh, tie wraps on it to seal the ends. So we're, uh, we're getting ready to, uh, to do the launch here. Yeah. Hey, Tom, uh, David in the chat room wants to know the purpose of the small blue balloon. The small balloon was to tell us which way the wind's blowing. We're going to turn loose of it in a minute, and we're going to see what happens with the blue balloon, but um, it's really not that necessary. You can usually tell uh, where the wind is. We had like, quite a bit of wind that, that, that morning. I usually launch uh, at least a couple of those just to see where it's going, and I try and get the lift. The semi match the scent rate so that you can get a really good idea where it's heading. Yeah. That's our pilot balloons, we call those. So you can see the tie wraps here. That's how we sealed it. Both ends are open and it was sealed with tie wraps. Let's start young and let it go. And my understanding is that Scary. does not leak, and we're going to be doing more let testing. Why you let it go? You're screaming. Nah. Mm. Hey, let's, uh, back okay, uh, we're about ready for launch. We're about T-minus about 15 seconds here. You can see the antenna is so small, you can't even see it here. Um, that's the difficult part about, about this. you got to be careful not to break the 
the antennas. They used the high vis fishing line to tape the antenna wire, the magnet wire to. Yeah, we used uh, the Spectra. Right, that's what I used, but yeah. I, I buy the high vis yellow. Oh, do you? And I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about too. that. Actually, once this is launched, you'll actually see the string in the antenna at a distance. It uh, surprised me that, and we don't use any string on the bottom half. We right, just the kinda, red would probably work out pretty well in that grassy field. Yeah. So it, it actually, this thing had some force to it. It actually jerked it out of my hand uh, on the uh, launch here. Now this had your higher power amplifier. This circuit. had the uh, 100 milliwatt transmitter, and it did really well. Uh, it was getting into Europe and uh, uh, Hawaii, and it covered, I think, every state. I was just uh, a little disappointed we didn't get to test it over, uh, you know, the stands in China and the Pacific. The signal was very stable. Um, I copied it uh, through a remote radio. And it was uh, just very stable. There went the test balloon. Moving out. Good it, thing you got a big field. Yeah, it, it's moving on. But I want you to watch it. This was a, probably, I think this is one of the prettiest launches we've done. Looks like a half moon. And people may ask, why is it so empty? Well, guys, it's, you know, Ed, Ed first thought, he, he went, uh-oh, he thought we didn't have enough lift here. But I'll tell you, we have enough lift. That thing has a lot of lift. So that balloon at altitude is going to be completely full. So here we go. Watch this launch. It yanks it out of my hand here. And there it goes, man. And if you watch closely, you'll see the tracker hanging below it here in a, in a couple seconds. There it is. You can we kind of zoomed in. You can see the string, actually. How do you keep the bottom magnet wire from getting kinked up during launch? We, uh, we just stretch it out. Do you put a little weight on the bottom of it? So you mean the bottom mag magnet wire? Or, yeah, the bottom. No, the, I, we haven't done anything. We, we haven't. You know, I've always wondered, you know, maybe I should put a, uh, you know, a little uh, lead shot or something on the end of it, you know. I usually oh, put a piece of wide tape on it, about a quarter gram, to kind of keep it straight. Yeah. Um, so that was our launch. It went up to 44,288 feet. It started slowing down. Just perfect. It it reached 44,288 and it stayed there for about I don't know half hour hour and then it got dark on us I really did truly expect to see it the next morning because that thing is built like a tank we call it the Moab the mother of all balloons I mean it is solid it had a lot of gas in it um, you know I, I don't think it would tear easily I don't think it didn't have any seams to rip apart up there I really expected to see it the next day uh, I think what happened is we lost our super pressure during the night time when the sun went down and it just came down. And the fact it was probably over the Atlantic because it was just outside of Jackson, uh, Jacksonville, Florida when it um, when we lost it for darkness. If now, we, one thing you can do for your next flight, yeah, Tom. What's that? And uh, how are you going to go beyond uh, mother of all balloons? Uh, what's well, the next one going to be? Well, I tell you, the next you one, that one, the next one, I thought this was the mother of all balloons, but it's not. It's not. And let me show you what, what our plan is to start on this week. 
let me go here to um, let me go here and I'm gonna pull up there we go we're gonna call it fat boy you know the, the atomic bomb I hope the, it doesn't have the same fate <laughs> yeah one of the one of the atomic bombs dropped during uh, World War two I think was called fat boy now here's a, here's what here's what we plan on building and your altitude is restricted due to the diameter of your balloon. The SBS diameter is only, I don't know, a couple feet. It's only uh, six feet in circumference. So six foot, six feet divided by pi would be two feet and something. So the SBS is not a very big balloon and it, it does 45,000. And we've never really been able to find anything else that will, will fly at that altitude. That's about all we had. So we're trying to we're trying to break that ceiling. So we're gonna build a balloon here in the shop, maybe this week. And if you look at this picture, that's a it's gonna look like a flying saucer. We're going to have a 20 foot circumference, 20 foot circumference, and we're gonna open up that diameter of that. Uh, of that balloon so an sbs is about two two feet a little over two feet this one diameter is going to be 6.36 feet in diameter and the the cylinder part is going to be 10 feet tall by by six feet in diameter now that's going to hold about nine cubic meters of gas all right are you still going to be able to tie the ends off yeah. like you did in this last one? Now, if you look at this picture here, we're going to tie the ends off again, and we're going to funnel them together, and uh, we're going to tie them off. Now, this does add weight. It adds quite a bit of weight to the balloon. If there was some way to make that a perfect cylinder, we could really cut the weight down. But we're going to, we're going to bring this together, tie it off again, tie wraps and so forth. Uh, total, and each of those little cones up there calculates at about 0.9 cubic meters so right there we have a total of we have a total of uh, 9 plus 0.9 plus 0.9 or we've got a total of about 10 um, 10.8 yeah 10.8 uh, uh, total uh, uh, volume cubic meters of volume okay so now uh, and then these are estimates based on some other material. I've got I've got four thousand square feet of material coming in this week. This thinner than this. It's one point two mils, so it's going to be lighter. This particular one where I did the numbers here, it came in at a hundred and sixteen grams. That's I mean a, a thousand a thousand one hundred and sixteen grams. That's because we've got a twenty foot circumference and we had to make we had to the material had to be about 18 feet long so we could bundle up the ends now you're into the range of those big latex balloon flights now you're going to have to be uh, using big hydrogen tanks and well you, you might consider building uh, a bigger sunroom yeah, well, yeah, I may have to. So, so but here, based on the spreadsheet you gave us, uh, a bill. I mean, I just put put some numbers in, and at a, at eleven hundred sixteen grams on this particular one, and this is going to change. Eleven hundred sixteen grams uh, weight for the balloon. Ten point eight cubic meters. It's going to take about point nine meters 
cubic meters to, to, for, to fill it. That's quite a bit of gas. Uh, the tractor only weighs 15 grams. Uh, we, the last one we flew was six and a half, 6.5 percent free lift. We'll probably go up a little on free lift here. So 7% free lift on this one would be 78 grams free lift. And you know, I, Bill, on all the balloons that you've, you've flown with me and taught me, you know, we've used something like 6 grams of free lift or 3 grams of free lift. And I never thought about it like this. But what I'm learning is that the free lift actually can be measured in percent and that's probably a good number right. because if you look at an SBS balloon uh you know uh, just a little over 100 grams you it's know about six percent six percent is six grams yeah balloon so when so I see numbers when I, gas when I first saw numbers like this of free lift I had to put 70 Eight, 78 grams of free lift I, I, I was getting a little uh, I don't know I, I, I wasn't sure now the spreadsheet says this balloon should float at 62,926 feet now I don't know if it will or not probably will uh, I redid the numbers today Bill on that 1.2 mil material and it's showing 72,000 feet. So I don't know, man. You know, I don't uh, know. That's probably very uh, overly optimistic. But yeah. you're, um, you're also going to need uh, extra shovels to put that in the back of your uh, minivan. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I know. you might have to rent a panel van for this one. We may have to just get a U-Haul trailer to take it out there. So, so, you know, I mean... You know, one cubic meter of gas, I mean, you can squinch the balloon down. It'll still fit in the back of my pickup. My pickup can handle more than one cubic meter. But uh, this is going to be interesting. I, the key here is to try to get enough lift in it that it'll maintain float during the night. And, and I've not, got a suggestion for your electronics, your that, power supply. What was that? Uh, since you've got plenty of lift here yep um get yourself some AAA a uh, lithium batteries and put a diode in series as a uh and and don't use lipos use the ever readies yeah you buy at lithium, the the lithium. Drug store those primary cells those can handle 40 below zero in fact they'll work well, down to well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. I mean, if I did that, I'd probably want to change a couple things. For instance, I was planning on running the 100 milliwatt transmitter again on this flight. Uh -huh. That draws that when it's transmitting, it's drawing about 100 milliamps. So that oh, might yeah. not be good for those batteries. Maybe I should go down. Well, those batteries the, can handle the current drain, but they're rated at about 1100 milliamp hours for the AAA cells. Uh, and you would just need three of those, yeah. actually. Yeah. Let's see. One point two. Well, they're what? They're one. They're one. One point two volts each. They'll one, drop from one point seven volts down to about one point two when they're super cold. So yeah. you'll still need three of them, and uh, put a series blocking diode so when they die out, your 
bloom and then just goes totally solar power. But you'll get data for the overnight uh, flight for your first day. First night, yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, uh, you know, there is a way, there is a way to jettison those. Well, no, I could, I could drop, I could drop the batteries. You could, but then that would probably put too much stress on the balloon because you're expecting a certain percentage of uh, free lift. And if you drop something yeah. that heavy, it's going to probably add a little too much free lift. During the day, yeah, it hour. probably would. I could, I could drop the batteries, but well, I, I might drop them on somebody's head. Uh, <laughs> I, I could, but I, I think the unplugging them part might be the, you know, the wires might be the the issue. Uh, the stands aren't going to like you dropping stuff on them. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm working in in, in Bill, and I'm I'm not disclosing really some of the people I'm working with right now. On this, They're, they they were just uh, they want to stay in the background right now, but. Uh, Bill knows who I'm talking about, and uh, uh, this particular person has spent 30 years flying big balloons, and I'm talking balloons that hold, he says, 100 million cubic feet. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's uh, that's a big balloon, 100 million cubic feet, and it will lift thousands of pounds, thousands. So, so get him on board, and he has to start thinking about three grams here and four grams there, where he's used to, you know, thousands of pounds. Now, one of the things that um, one of the things that I learned about the big balloons. Oh, hey, and he says they drop. You know, they would drop ballast uh, to keep those they're, in. They're in the air. zero pressure balloons yeah, for the most part, zero but pressure. they do have some very large. Pumpkin super pressure balloons, and he would. They would drop. Uh, they would drop uh, ballast. They may drop a thousand pounds of ballast, but guess what? Some of the ballast is made out of lead shot, like lead balls. They would drop. Well, uh, I'll tell you, uh, we were doing a uh, around the world flight, manned uh, flight, uh, with uh, Richard Branson was one of the sponsors on that. And we launched it from a uh, airport in Reno, Nevada, and it took th- uh, three semi truck loads of helium lifting gas. Yeah. Oh yeah. And twenty thousand pound payload. It was a pressurized capsule. Right. And it was a twenty below zero, and there was a big inversion layer. So they they lifted off, and they hit that inversion layer. A few hundred feet above the launch site and they stopped going up and so i was noticing towards the end of the parking lot there were little things that were falling from the balloon they were dumping yeah the little balls overhead and i says what are they dropping though all those little uh, rubber balls for and the guy says those aren't rubber balls that's lead balls that they're dumping over to uh, get yeah. some lift well he and said hoping they didn't hit any of the he, uh, hey, he said the they would drop a thousand they would drop a thousand pounds of lead at a time now, now i now said they, man i said typically you know flying these over remote regions well, of new mexico or western texas but but listen listen to this though you know i said well being you know i mean we all know what sleet is we all know what hail is but when we start seeing lead balls fall out of the sky, you know, what, what, that, what's that'd happening, That would be hard man? to uh, put on your insurance policy. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know what? You know what he says? He said at that altitude, when they release 1,000 pounds of those lead balls, 
He said maybe only two of them hit per square mile. I, I can believe that. They dispersed pretty well. You know, so, wow, man. So, hey, anyway, so, you know, we're very, uh, I don't know, we're, we're going to be pushing a limit. The material I've got coming in is, is polyurethane. And polyurethane, we think, should hold at those altitudes. Uh, is it a single layer or multi-layer plastic? I'm not sure what it is right now. It's just polyethylene. But we're going to tape the seam. No, no more of this glue, adhesive, trying to do a hot seal. That stuff don't work. That last one we launched was all hot sealed with a sealing iron, and uh, I think it just came apart at 37,000 feet. But the tape, and, and my understanding is on these big balloons that are bigger than, you know, 10 houses put yep. together, they, they seal, they seal that, that 1.3 mil or 3 mil stuff. They seal it. They splice it with tape. So I've got some special poly tape coming in that I've tried on some polyfilm here. And, man, it sticks it like Did you would get it from them because they're special strato tape, they call it. No, I didn't, I didn't get it from them. I got it from uh, the CIA, actually. Okay. So I wasn't supposed right. to say that. Oh, crud. Now we're going to have to go out and kill all the listeners. That's right. So, uh, so anyway, I've got some poly tape. I've tested now. it. I've tested the poly tape down to zero. It doesn't affect it. I need to test it down to uh, a minus forty. But that poly tape, you, you, you know, uh, on that last balloon, we 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 overlapped it. We did a heat seal down it, almost two inches wide, and it did not hold. But this poly, this poly, we're gonna do a butt splice where it goes just side by side piece of tape down it and man that stuff is strong it is really strong now here's the next step i've got some what manom manometer ordered and uh i'm setting up to oh, measure i wish you'd have told me i, I could have, i had a good recommendation for that well, I've, I've got one that you're using out there, and I'm uh, also okay. also water. You know, I can take the uh, the clear hose, and we can do a water measurement, inches of water, and convert sure. that. You but know. this manometer, uh, I, I got one that works really well for that kind of stuff. It's, yeah. Uh, I will send you the Amazon link for it. Okay. So, so uh, once we get this material put together, we'll be using that monitor to to measure the differential pressure. And we'll pump that thing up, and we'll try to see how high, what kind of pressure we can get in there. And uh, we should know what the pressure is going to be at 70,000 feet. And if our You're test... talking about the a pressure sensor inside the balloon? Uh, no, it's actually probably going to be a hose stuck in the top end and tie wraps around it. Okay. Yeah. Um, well... You know, it'd, the, be just, uh, it'd just be like measuring the pressure on your tire. You know, you put the gauge on a little valve. I stand. understand that, but you uh, you have to look at there's um, it, it'll have to be a differential sensor. Yeah. And look at the range that you're going to be at. I know a lot of absolute sensors do not work at those altitudes. They'll flat top at about forty four thousand feet. Um, Motorola made a great pressure sensor that I used to use on uh, high altitude balloons. It would work up to 99,000 feet. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
it was the MPX 5102A, and then uh, I've got a new batch in. It was a different date code. It was a little one year later on the date code. That was the only difference because this time I went up, same exact uh, hardware, same programming, and it stopped working at 44,000 feet. So mm -hmm. I looked at the data sheet. It still said well, it worked down to zero pressure. I uh, called the company, uh, Motorola, and I got a hold of an engineer and started discussing it. Oh, it was too difficult for our factory to produce yeah. uh, uh, down to zero pressure. Yep. So we stopped it at 0.25 PSI. It, it was much easier to calibrate it there. So, And yep. we, we uh, haven't updated our data sheet yet. Thanks. Well, so I don't know, but you know, hey, we're going to give it the old college try. And uh, there's another way to measure the pressure, and that is, you know, a clear hose that is that's in there coming out with water in it, and you measure the water lift. You know, 4.2 inches rise of water equals so many millibars. You know, and all that. And so now I'm learning millibars and stuff like that. You know, um, and pascals. Yeah, I'm, I'm learning all that now. You know, I've, I've never had to practice that myself, measuring water level. And uh, uh, But, you know, um, it's a very sophisticated uh, system you put out there. You stick the hose in the balloon on one end and clamp it down, and you run your uh, you run your clear hose uh, down to the floor and up. You, you tie-wrap it to a ladder, and then you put some water in it, and then you measure. As you put pressure in the balloon, you measure the lift of the water, and that tells you the pressure so whoo i don't know so hey get yourself some mercury it won't have to be as long yeah yeah, yeah. Hey, so got some questions in the chat room yeah uh first one is would heat shrink over the ends be a weight saving a heat shrink oh, over hey. the end uh no because you're gonna have basically you're gonna have the same amount of stem that you're gonna put the heat shrink over you know uh, it probably would add to weight uh weight to it and it probably melt through the plastic. Yeah, yeah, it might. It might do that. So, Bill, you know, I, I, I maybe others have tried this. We like to do wild and crazy things on the show. We like to, we like to, you know, go for the. We're going for the goal this time. Push the limits. We're going. We're going for the limit this time, and. Uh, I mean, you know, we're tired of flying balloons at 44,000 feet. And, you know, that's getting boring now, you know. I want to uh, fly balloons. Braun will we need I want to fly balloons now at 70,000 and keep them in the air and go around the world. So that's going to be our goal. If you, if you could uh, if you could break uh, about 55,000 feet, yep. it would stay up for pretty much a year or more, one or two years. Hey, fifty-five. I think fifty-five thousand would be so much easier than what I'm talking about here. I mean, it's. I think it's going to be easier. And I'll send you uh, some uh, old papers on uh, yeah. that did in the fifties and sixties that uh, I've just been looking, reviewing recently, and it uh, describes the percentage free lifts and the materials you're talking about and some of the techniques. And there's a lot to be learned by. What has done, been done before, particularly back in the 60s, they did all kinds of really neat things. So, well, you know, you know, this last balloon we launched, some of the testing showed that five grams was not enough to keep it in the air overnight. 
And it also showed that 8 grams of free lift, or 8% free lift, was about one half millibar, whatever that is, one half millibar from it splitting the material open. I mean, it was just close the eight, the eight percent. It's a fine uh, balance between, yep. and you have to pretty much, you can calculate that on that spreadsheet I sent you. Yep. But um, really, it's going to be uh, an empirical thing where you launch test flights to see um, see what survives and measure that range empirically. Yeah. So five five we knew would come down, eight percent we knew would split the balloon it's so, a narrow range. so i picked yeah. i picked 6.5 you know i mean we could have gone seven but uh when i, I talked to him they said well it's your your balloon your call well hey i'm an amateur man i don't know what to put in there so i said let's go with 6.5 then you know i don't want to get close to five and i sure don't want to get it close to eight you know so I don't know. I think I think if we'd put more in there, we would have stayed up. And uh, you see, those are the numbers, but in grams for those SBS thirty yeah. balloons. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to tell you that uh, flying at forty five thousand feet, actually, that's pretty high for an SBS thirteen. They typically fly around forty to forty two thousand, depending on whether yeah. you use helium or hydrogen. Um, but uh, you've had a few around forty four to forty five. The uh, even at that altitude, uh, it still can get pretty brutal. You're still at the odds. We launched two weeks ago, uh, 14 balloons to celebrate the uh, spring equinox from uh, 10 locations in the country and four sites internationally. Two in Australia, one in Argentina. Uh, we just recently had one go up from Thailand, and we're working on getting one to be launched from Nigeria. And finding ham radio operators to participate in these projects in those locations, uh, Thailand's not so hard because there actually is a there's APRS activity and there's a lot of ham radio operation. And Nigeria was the real challenge, but uh, these 14 balloons basically launched within about a two-day window. Mm-hmm. And out of those 14 balloons carrying, uh, most were APRS, a couple of them were Whisper, and uh, the SBS-13 balloons, only two of them are still flying at the end of two weeks that were launched in that original batch. Two more have launched uh, since then, uh, so there are actually four flying right now. but. Of those two, they both circumnavigated the world within seven hours of the same flight time. So they, yeah. uh, one was Audrey and Jack McElroy, KM4ZIA and KM4BUN mm-hmm. from uh, mm-hmm. Atlanta, Georgia. They've been on the show before. Uh, they actually um, were the took first place in the race around the world because uh, their flight time was 14 hours and... 14 days and seven hours to go completely around the world. And uh, Amy Allerton, KG7KYW-2, she went around the world in 14 hours, 14 days, 15 hours. All right. Only seven hours difference, uh, launched two days apart, 
to go completely around the world, and that's a pretty close race. But they're the only two that survived out of the original <clears throat> fourteen. So yeah, getting it's a tough thing up there. It's tough. Would be a lofty goal. So let me. Hey, Bill, do you remember? Didn't one of our balloons go make it around in nine days? I think it was right at nine days. Nine or ten days, somewhere in there. That's a so very that would quick that would be a pretty fast trip. Now, hey, uh, that's, that's about as fast as they come. All right. So uh, someone was asking the speed. I mean, you get up to. 55, 60,000, 70,000, there's not much well, wind. There, now, there's the drawback with going high is not, that not much wind. Uh, now you're <laughs> out of the jet stream and you're going to take a lot longer to go around the world. Uh, there's, yeah. there's, two, uh, there's a disadvantage and an advantage to that. So, okay, if you were, say, to put a uh, simplex repeater, oh, yeah. you're carrying a lot <clears> more weight. Or a slow scan TV camera, or a uh, crossband repeater from those that altitude, um, it would stay hover over a certain region. It would uh, go across that region a lot slower because you're yeah. in the minimum wind, wind fields. Uh, if it was going about 100 miles per hour in the jet stream, it would only be about 40 or 50 miles an hour or less. At sixty thousand feet, so, I, I, I'm seeing numbers like three to four knots at that and altitude. It could be, and as you get into the <clears throat> spring turnaround in April, right, which is happening right now, it's almost zero. Yeah. So I guess okay. Hey, I've got a heavy balloon. You saw the the fat boy there was a, a thousand grams. I think with the new material, I I'll, I probably will come in in the six hundred. 680 somewhere okay so that number is large still but i can put up i can put the batteries now i need the lithium what do you call what what brand were those, those uh, ever ready ever. Uh, the triple a ever ready uh batteries and they put out about 1.7 volts per cell when they're new <clears> and <throat> at that low temperature at night they're going to be right around 1.2 volts probably now should i go with triple a since i've got such a big uh well the triple a's are double 1100 milliamp hours and the double a's are about 2200 milliamp hours you could go with three double a's they're going to be pretty heavy yeah yeah sell and be done with it well okay so what was that glenn (laughs) Just go with a gel cell and be done. Yeah, with it. yeah. Yeah. Like, well, I, I, yeah. I, well. Hey, there you go. <clears throat> okay. Ten pound gel cell ought to do it. All right. And what are the AAA batteries? What's the rating on them in, in milliamp hours? Uh, they're about eleven hundred uh, milliamp hours. You have to derate them though uh, for the cold temperatures, <clears throat> so they'd probably be closer to about I don't know, probably about seven hundred milliamp hours. Yeah, seven hundred. So the, uh, if I'm if I'm uh, pulling if I'm pulling about a hundred milliamps, I mean that's seven hours worth of. Uh, you might want to consider for this. Yeah. Overnight flight going back to the ten milliwatt transmitter. Yeah. And, let me think. Uh, let me think if there's that a way you could get. You could probably get because <clears throat> what will happen during the daylight hours, you aren't going to be taking any uh, current out of the uh, battery pack right, right. during the daytime. So you could get maybe several nights out of it. 
Yeah. And this this kind of goes, you know, all joking aside, there's another chat room question. And that's uh, because of the size we're talking about. Does that still fall under the FCC guidelines for no licensed flight? Yes, because uh, it's based on the weight of the payload. And uh, the weight of the payload is still like a fraction of an ounce. And the uh, FAA limit part 101 is uh, six pounds per payload, a maximum of 12 pounds. So you're way, way, way underneath that. Now, there are some limitations on the size of the balloon envelope without having to get a waiver, but typically that's based on large weather balloons, and this will be about the same size as as a standard latex weather balloon. All right, so if I put the batteries on there, I can expect them to get us some transmissions at least during the first night. And maybe the second night. So the first night's important to know if we're coming down or not because the first night we did not know what was going on because we had no transmission. So we'll uh, we'll plan to run three batteries. The problem is if this thing stays up seven months, I'm going to be carrying those batteries around for seven months up there. Well, if you have the extra lift capability, <clears throat> then that's that's just no big deal. It's worth it yeah. to get that information on the first night. So I agree. Um, one more question here, and this is kind of a good one. Does the GPS have an altitude limit? The GPS does have an altitude limit, uh, and this is a, uh, a common mistake that happens for uh, a lot of people developing their own payloads for these balloon flights, um, particularly if they're using the U-Blocks line. Um you have to send it to command for airborne mode. And if you do not do that, it'll stay in car mode or pedestrian, vehicle mode or pedestrian mode, and it tops out at 40,000 feet and won't operate above that. Um, So you actually have to send it to command to put it into airborne mode. At that point, it's good up to about, well, it's the upper limit is about 160,000 feet, which is higher than any any of our balloons are going to go by far. Yeah, we may shoot for, maybe in about a year, we may shoot for a 160,000 foot float. I don't know. But right now, do you think well, it's... Well, then do you, you would think... need uh, a balloon that is <clears throat> one of the largest that your friend flies uh, yeah. with the government. All right. Uh, so Maybe let me ask you a question. Let me let me ask you a question. You know, we we're 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 several million. Been, we're I mean, real amateurs here. I mean, you know, there's some science behind it, and I've been studying, and I've been consulting with you and other people. I think this is possible. I think it's possible to fly at seventy thousand feet. Now, if it'll just hold together, and the the pressure testing that we do should tell us, because we know what the pressure should be at seventy thousand feet. I think. So, so if, if testing on the ground shows us that we can exceed that pressure at 70,000 feet, this thing should fly if we get enough gas in it. And, and not what come frequency down. are you going to be transmitting the whisper on? 20 meters. <clears throat> well, there, somebody in the chat room wants the frequency itself. It's, it's 14.0956 upper sidebound. Yeah. And you run the free WSJT-X program, 
which you can uh, download <coughs> by just searching for WSJT-X, and it's a free download, and it uploads whatever you receive to a server at whispernet.org, WSPRNET.org, and uh, you can look at the database or a map to see who all's picking it up. So, you know, Bill, I really, really wanted to run my 100 milliwatt PA, but I think I'm going to leave it off this flight. If you're going to yeah. run the battery pack, I would leave it off just to yeah. give you maximum nighttime <clears throat> operation. Now, these, these batteries, well, well, let me let me ask you another question. I mean, a lithium battery, I mean, a, li a lipo, the lipo salt. battery, the lipo battery won't. Won't charge. won't work below minus 20. They won't work. They won't charge or discharge. These are primary lithium cells. It's a different chemistry, <clears throat> and they will work down to the uh, temperatures you're going to experience at night. All right, now, I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to ask the question here, and I, I, I already know the answer. You, you really can't charge these primary cells, but... What if you, you could? What but, if you what if you put a little uh, charge? You definitely have the mother. You'd have the mother of all Hindenburgs. Oh, that's right. With the <laughs> with the the mother of all Hindenburgs with the with the gas and then if I charged the lithiums, yeah, okay. Yeah. I was thinking that well, I that might could your, I might uh, could get some charge into them and make them maybe yeah. last a few more days. You know. Just make it part of your ejection system, you know, start charging them and let them burn through the little wire and off they go. Yeah. Uh, here's another he's question. Be, instead of dropping batteries, he's going to be dropping flaming batteries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, how do the tie wraps react to the temperature at 50,000 feet? Well, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Because, uh, chat room they're saying he's using them at minus 20 and they get really brittle well they're, they're, um, you have to worry more about uv degradation on tie wraps so use the tie the wraps ones. that are designed for outdoor yeah, yeah. use yeah yeah that's what we're using the black ones that made for uv um yeah. so okay um so we're going to try to do some pressure tests here's our plan and we're, we hey the plan's coming together on the show tonight guys we're going to we're gonna go 20 foot circumference, big fat boy, fat boy. And um, I just hope we got it. we we bought an extra tank gas tank because of this. Oh oh hey, when we filled up the last balloon that you know we lost uh, uh, just this week, um, we were supposed to have something like 42 four, not 38 grams of free lift. And for some reason, that thing was so long, and we had one end rolled up, and it wasn't lifting. You know, when we're putting gas in it, it wasn't lifting for some reason. And I think it's because we had it curled over, and probably one side was trying to lift, and, and the other side just well, that, we didn't get it off the table. That's right. I know when you do the SPS 13s, I always say that to take, when you fold them in half, when you're inflating them in a small space, to take the top of the balloon and fold it over the bottom where you're yeah. inflating because then the bottom part will lift off the table. Right, and that's that's typically what we do. Around, uh, then you've got plastic sitting, and you're going to overfill. This one, this one though, was so long. Yeah, my room was not tall enough, even with it folded in half. But uh, what I was going to say is, we're supposed to hit 30, 38 grams of free lift, 
And we kept putting hydrogen in and hydrogen in, and we think, man, it's not lifting. I think, well, this is a big bloom, man. It's going to take a lot. And we finally measured it, and we had 150 grams of free lift in it, which is way, wow. way, way, way too much. So we had to squeeze out. And use the neighbor's dog. We had to squeeze out 120 grams of hydrogen. And we did squeeze most of that out outside the door. We, we not all of it, but most of it. I was, was going to say uh, your sunroom <coughs> may have been become another sun. You might have created a fusion reaction right in your sunroom. Well, yeah, you know, we the did other. test the balloon prior to that. The homemade one. We did the seams down it. We, we left it in there overnight to you know see if it's going to leak. And. I didn't realize this, but we flame tested it. Uh, my wife uh, lit up the grill out there right by the door. It was probably eight feet away. She lit the grill up, and we cooked some, I don't know, grilled chicken or something. So you, not, cooked, you, cooked, you could cook the sunroom. So, uh, so we didn't have Saturday any leak. We, we didn't have a leak, uh, so that was good. <clears throat> All right, so... So, Bill, what do you think the chances are, man? If 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 testing on the ground shows that this poly will will handle the pressure, what do you think the success rate is for us floating a balloon at sixty-eight thousand feet? Well, if you were able to stay at that altitude, uh, anything over about fifty-five thousand feet. Will get you over 99.9 percent .9 of all storms except in the tropics you'll you want to be at that point where you're actually in the stratosphere which is right around that varies of course uh but the, that tropopause you want to be just slightly above the tropopause because no thunderstorm is going to go any higher than that yeah. and then you will be you will be <clears throat> safe from storms at that point and icing uh, we just had uh, one that's flying with two of those uh, clear Chinese balloons um, that all of a sudden he he's flying pretty low. He's only flying at 26,000 feet. And he went down today over the Atlantic. Uh, he went down to about 18,000 feet. And then the ice melted off and he went back up. So he had a bit of a scare there. So. Um, and so, yeah, you want to, the biggest thing that will get these things, um, are turbulence and icing. Those are the and, two factors that can kill them off. Yeah. And if you stay above that tropopause area, um, which is the upper range of where it transitions from the troposphere to the stratosphere, um, there's no storm can reach you at that point at that altitude. So I wish I would be able to see this when it was fully inflated at sixty because yeah. it's going to look like a, it's going to look like it's going to look like a flying saucer. You know, it's going to be it's going right. to push out. It's going to push out on the sides and it's going to be kind of a little point on the top and a little point on the bottom. But it's going to it's going to fill out. You know, just like a flying saucer. Well, you remember. Wait six months and watch it on the Ancient Aliens show. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Uh, remember the Balloon Boy uh, scare? <laughs> yeah. It kind of looked like a flying saucer. Yeah, here's another chat room question comment, Tom, and that's with all of this hydrogen gas you're buying. 
Uh, how soon before the feds show up at your house again? Well, I don't know. I don't think there's any limit on hydrogen gas, is there? I, I mean, you know, helium, helium. No, uh, no, your biggest uh, issue with hydrogen is convincing the gas company to sell it to you. Yeah, we got a we got a good supplier. There's uh, no, there's no yeah. uh, restriction. Yeah, we've got a good supplier. Of, uh, yeah. We got a good supplier there. Uh, and you could make your own. Well, um, I thought about that, but, but uh, we probably this, we this probably would blow the place up if we tried to make our own. We probably would blow the place up. <laughs> Well, see, that's the other thing. Was she using the grill that Saturday that I was there? She was, yeah. Was that when this whole thing went no, down? No, the no, the, no, no. That was uh, the other homemade balloon that uh, it was, I think, a week or two before that. I might suggest um, when you do something like that and and these larger things, if you're inflating them in your sunroom, uh, make sure that you don't turn on the uh, overhead fan or anything like that. Yeah. You also kind of yeah. open the windows. Yeah. Well, it was yeah, cold. It was cold that day. Plus, hey, we can't have a lot of wind running. Yeah, you we, we would have had plenty of good heat if something you, had gone the You wrong can't line. measure. You well, can't. my concern would be uh, yeah. hydrogen gas collecting in the ceiling, and you turn on a turn on a uh, a fan a with a little spark, fan and it sparks and. There goes your sunroom. Yeah, because those uh, windings are not the the best in the world. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm in the middle of a big insurance claim right now, so if it happened, I'd just tell them that was part of the tree that fell. Yeah, another tree fell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, let me make an announcement here real quick. Hey, boy, we about filled this uh, time up. Uh, if you're listening out there on the International Shortwave on WBCQ, 7490 kilohertz, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to tom at w5kub.com. Tell us where you are, how you're here in the station. And uh, this show is all about ham radio, amateur radio, if you're interested in it. And uh, you can watch the show live on Tuesday evenings. Uh, and all of our shows, we've got about 700 shows recorded now. All on YouTube, just uh, search for W5KUB on YouTube and uh, you'll, you'll be able to look at all the previous shows. And uh, well, lately, the last uh, 30 minutes, we've been talking about uh, one of the projects that our show has, and we're going to put another balloon in the air, and we're going to try to go around the world again. Now, our best, our best balloon only went around the world three and a half times in 72 days. Uh, I think the last next successful one we had, it went around one and a half times, so we haven't had just great luck. Although the show's mission and goal, back when we started this about a year and a half ago, our goal was to get a balloon around the world. And we did that, but then we got hooked on it. And um, uh, thanks to uh, several people that have actually donated, we put your name on the, uh, the uh, sponsor uh, page there on our website. And uh, we have spent, uh, even though I'm building the tracker myself and saving money, uh, we have spent um, multiple thousands of dollars in these launches over the last year and a half because we've just about kept one in the air almost the whole time. Uh, Bill, are we crazy that we've flown so many? Do you know anybody else that flies as many as we've flown in the last year and a half? Uh, there's, you're, you're up there in quantity for sure. Yeah. Uh, but there are, uh, now I'm going to tell you, even uh, at 43,000 feet, 
it is possible to stay aloft for a long period of time. Oh, yeah. There's a school, there's a school in uh, Seton Prep School in New Jersey. They launched two balloons as their very first effort. Uh, both of them are APRS. Um, and one of their balloons uh, has gone around the world six times now and has been aloft since January 27th, 68 days ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's currently over Israel. And, and which what type balloon was that? That's an SBS-13. SBS-13, yeah. 43,000 feet. And right, there are... Helium. I believe they're running helium on that. And there are, there are the cheap $4, 36-inch Chinese balloons that have been around the world six and seven times. That's correct. It, it's, yeah. Look, you gotta have several things, man. You got the two most important are good luck and Mother Nature on your side because that's what keeps them in the air, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. Tom, based on the state of your house, I'd have to question the Mother Nature being on your side thing. <laughs> yeah. What What was that, Glenn? Based on what's been happening to your house recently, oh. I don't think you could qualify for the being on Mother Nature's good side thing. Well, we will move back out to my shop to build. If we, if well, I'm still waiting on a new garage door to be put in uh, on my shop. Uh, so it's kind of off limits right now as far as building a balloon. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, so far we, you know, we've been lucky, lucky, and we we've, we've tried to be safe. Uh, we've got all of our eyebrows and our fingers. Um, one time uh, last year in the shop, we were putting hydrogen in, and the hair on our, all of our arms and our head was standing up. And I, I know that's static electricity, but that's the only time I've ever felt that, you know. Well, when you're dealing with that much plastic, and if your humidity is starting to drop, particularly if you're indoors, during the winter, uh, that's a bad combination. Um, so, and yeah, the Hindenburg's coming to mind on that. For, one. for example, in uh, Glenn's situation, he doesn't want to be inflating a balloon in his uh, workshop there and pet the cat and then touch the balloon. It's just, yeah, yeah. It's not a good thing. No. All right. All right. Well, hey, we made some good decisions tonight. No, no, uh, no uh, PA amplifier on this one. We're going to go 10 milliwatts. After all, the 10 milliwatts does transmit 9,000 miles. It's always done really well. We're going to go with uh, three AAA lithium batteries. And um, we're going to shoot for 70,000 feet. That's our goal. And then it will just sit over your house for the next 300 days. But that's okay. That's okay. If it'll stay up there for four or five months, we've pretty much accomplished, I think, what we wanted to do. You know. Well, actually, that is the ultimate goal yeah. is station keeping. If you can keep an aerial platform in one spot, there are big government contracts out there to be able to do that for surveillance and communications. Yep. Yeah. I mean, this could be the ultimate in emergency comms if you can stick something up there at 70,000 feet that slowly goes across the country during a time of disaster. Um, you've got a, a crossband repeater or a simplex repeater. That's a great idea. 
That's the next. That's the next. Uh, next thing on the show, we're going to buy two bow things for nineteen dollars each. Cross band it. Send it up seventy thousand feet. I did that with uh, Linkos, which yeah. were the um, the bowfangs of twenty years ago, and uh, a little. Those really expensive, inexpensive uh, DJ. Oh, what was that called? A DJ four T, I think. Oh, okay. Depending on the brand. They they work at uh, forty or fifty below, though. Yeah, they did uh, because they were running on. Uh, I believe they were running on batteries, double uh, A cells. Right, hey, so, real quick, um, let me make a quick announcement. We're about to go off here. Hey, guys, anybody uh, out there that has not done it, please hit the subscribe button. We'd love you to hit the subscribe button. It helps our show out tremendously. So hit the subscribe button. Hit the link, uh, the like button. And, hey, tell your friends. Uh, I want everybody to bring two friends with them to the show next week. Thank yeah. you and good night to everybody out there. We uh, had a good time tonight. Enjoyed talking with you. And uh, if you have any questions for Alan or... Or, or Bill or Glenn or me, just shoot us an email and uh, we'll get back with you. Thanks a lot, everybody. And uh, we'll say, say good night to everybody listening on Shorewave out there. We had a uh, great time tonight. We'll see you next week. Now, also, be, while there's still people watching uh-huh. through the uh, chat, uh, YouTube, um, Basically, if you put up a simplex repeater, as you mentioned, with two bowfangs would be good. Um, if you have an old ICOM IC32 and a few of others, they have a crossband repeater mode with filters in them that you yep. just set up. And uh, I think some modern radios, handhelds, have that feature too. Uh, but you'll have to condition the audio. Um, I'd just build a little audio interface board uh, to adjust the audio levels going into the microphone yeah, yeah. input of the second transmitter, and it works great. We uh, we set that up. Um, I've I've done that many times, and we've had people from um, Southern Alabama talking to people in Ohio using a balloon as a as a repeater relay. Uh, it covered twelve states that people could talk to each other. We did it during field day as a demonstration many years ago. And we had field day sites, probably 20 of them talking through this thing uh, while it was doing its flight. And it's it's just a wonderful thing to see how far, because you can see 400 miles in all directions, uh, RF-wise and visually from that altitude. And uh, from the heights that you're flying with your Pico balloons that you can see 250 miles in all directions. So you can get some massive coverage. I mean, just imagine if you had a 10-mile high antenna on your property. Just uh, how how great that would be, or a 20-mile high antenna. Yeah. So, um, yeah I like so, the idea of putting a, a slow scan uh, slow scan TV camera up there and probably get some nice pictures from that altitude. We've done slow scan TV. Um, I, I had a little two-meter. Actually, I used one of my little sky tracker boards as an FM transmitter. And there's a company called Argent Data that makes an SSTV cam, and it's a serial camera. You could probably do this similar thing, but if it takes some programming with a Raspberry Pi camera and a Raspberry Pi. Well, but, yeah. uh, anyways, you yeah. you just set it up to send a slow scan image every every minute or every ninety seconds, and we had some 
we have a little overlay of the altitude. It, it would actually overlay the call sign and the altitude mm-hmm. uh, that's above cool. each frame. And we had great results. For but, you know, you know, that's nice. But what's your range on that going to be? A few hundred miles, probably? Same as ATRS. Well, you're talking about sending a, a TV signal? Of, uh, slow scan television. Slow yeah. scan. Audio signal. Okay, a slow, a slow scan, okay. Yeah, it's 70,000 okay. feet. Anybody that can decode QRSS can yeah, decode yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, let's see, I was going to say. Oh, we've we, we got, hey, the, I, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving the video up, so uh, we still have people watching, so be, don't call anybody, you know. You would want to do your slow scan TV on, uh, on VHF because... Uh, the signal levels required to pick it up on um, the HF right. bands, 20, uh, 10 milliwatts probably wouldn't uh, right. do too well. Right. It's and then, and then, and then it's going to be out of, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not a real good, reliable, I mean, I, if I want to put a camera up, I'd like something more uh, fast scan, not not a slow scan. You know, not an image every. Oh well, uh, I've flown. I've, yeah. I flew the very first fast scan TV transmitter yeah. in the world on a balloon, and 33 years ago. But when you was, do that, when you do that, Bill, difficult to do on a uh, to find a uh, a very lightweight uh, yeah. TV camera in 1987. I, they were heavy then. TV. But when you do that, when you do that, though, you're talking range of only a few hundred miles, aren't you? You're not talking well, about the range at, from 100,000 feet. I had people watching the TV signal out to three to 400 miles. Right? Yeah, three to 400 miles, and then if, as that thing floats off, then you don't have it anymore. You know, so. Yeah, but uh, the the images were phenomenal. Yeah, uh, yeah. Our university. When they do their uh, big TV flights, uh, big balloon flights for their outreach program, uh, they uh, they often send up a fast scan television transmitter. Plus, the really cool thing is now we have digital amateur television, and the so before with analog TV, you really needed a very strong signal to get a yep. snow-free image. You could still see it, but snowy at a weaker level. When you're out a couple three hundred miles, you can see the image, but there's going to be a lot of snow in the image. right. Yeah. Now, as long as you're above that threshold of the digital, it's either on or off. It's either perfect or no image at all. Yeah. Uh, but that level is actually, if you narrow the bandwidth of the digital TV transmission to like two megahertz, is what most people are doing, and you use the DVB dash t format that they use in europe you can't use our aatsc format we use here in america uh, one it doesn't handle multi-path mobile operations very well and two it's proprietary and expensive yeah. so most people are using the european standard for uh, for sending a balloon transmitter with a uh, digital tv transmitter Hey, let, let me ask you. I got you on here. That, uh, the picture that's on your website, that eighth grade science fair balloon, looks like ninety-five thousand feet. What did you What did you use for that image? Uh, what was that again? There's a, a photo on your website. It um, looks like an eighth grade science fair balloon project at ninety-five thousand feet. There's an aerial photo. What was used for that? Oh, I believe that. Uh, Is that another balloon? Website? Yeah, that believe. was another balloon yeah. following it, wasn't it? Uh, 
Oh, well, let's see. Let me take a look here and see what you're referring to. WB80LK.com? Right, yeah. And then it's uh, it's like the Jody Tinker's 8th grade science fair balloon photo from 95,000 feet. Was that the two balloons that just happened to stick real close side by side? No, this is different than what he's talking about. But, I, yeah, we did a, um, a balloon events uh, conference where we launched 10 uh, balloons, one of which had a digital camera. And two of our balloons stayed 200 feet apart mm. throughout the entire flight. And we got an image from 200 feet away at 53,000 feet of uh, another payload taking a picture of my payload. But that was a digital camera that we recovered later that was not transmitted. Uh, this is a, uh, oh, that was a camcorder that was recovered after the, that was not transmitted down. Okay, okay. That was a camcorder that was recording, and then we recovered the payload and and play back the uh, play back the memory card. All right, hey guys, exciting times coming. Can we do it? Let's take a vote around the room right now. I'll see if we got Bill and Alan and and Glenn. All right, do you think we can do it? What do you think? Yes or no? Do what? Put this balloon up there. 69,000. Float it. Make it float. Oh, I think you can get it up there. The question is, how long is it going to get up there? Well, uh, remember what Edison said. Edison didn't sleep much. He said, why uh, why, why should I sleep? I'm wasting all that good time, you know. To Well, that's wise advice, too. Yeah, he never uh, slept much. When he get, when he would get sleepy, when Edison would get sleepy, he would take That's a nap. Exactly what I was getting at. What uh, was that? Uh, what what was that? I didn't hear it. What Edison? I let, I'll let Bill tell the official version. No, you tell that one. I got another one. That he said. Okay. Uh, somebody asked Edison, you know, about the thousand failures while he was making the light bulbs, and he said, "No, I was, never failed." I just right. found a thousand different ways that didn't work. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Hey, while he was in Memphis, he was in Memphis for a while, and there's a plaque on a building downtown Memphis where uh, Edison invented the electric roach trap. I've never I seen one. one of those. That's, never yeah. seen one. That's great. Put that out in the barn. Yeah. So um, he also said um, invention is. 91% uh, inspiration and 99% perspiration. Yeah. In yeah. room, they said, uh, also attributed to Edison is, what can I steal today? <laughs> yeah, that's what uh, they just put that in the chat room. What can I steal today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my my uh, my thoughts are it's 1%, 1 uh, uh, putting this thing together and 99% Mother Nature. Yeah, that's, it that's, really has yeah. been. I mean, I didn't say that very well, but it, you kind of get the gist here, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you, when we did our Equinox balloon project, Tom, uh, you had mentioned that uh, you had about a 10% success rate. One out of 10 right. balloons would make it around the world. Yep. And so we launched 14, and two made it around the world. Well, so that's what I tell close. everybody. They asked about this. I say, if you want to send a balloon around the world, you've got to be prepared to to uh, to go 10 times. you got to try 10 times. We made it on our ninth trip. 
Also, if you want to send a balloon around the world, there's another thing you got to be prepared to do, and that is take that balloon. You know, it's got the string hanging from it. Take a $100 bill out of your wallet, tie it to that string, and then let it go. That's what you got to do. And if you can't do that, you can't fly the balloon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only 100 <laughs> Well, actually, it's probably a little more than that. I mean, even at the, at the low end, you know. <laughs> Yeah, oh hey hey you know one of the things one of the things i want to do one of the things i want to do guys and i think there's other people looking into this i don't know if it's possible but there are chips out there now you can get and there's circuitry and there's a lot of rf in the air and uh, uh energy energy harvesting i'd like to be able to harvest energy while it's flying from the TV stations in Russia to you know wherever, harvest that harvest that energy and put it in you know and and and, and save it's it and then use quite it. Quite to the level of we we would have to be about the microwatt level for that. It's to it's going to be very low. the 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 harvesting is going to be very low for sure. Uh, maybe you maybe you store it up and, for. Uh, I will say just from experimentation. Yeah. Uh, if you just, I tried some experiments on Whisper just with my outside antenna and a number of those uh, cylinder attenuators to drop it down below 10 milliwatts and see how effective it was. And once you get down around 5 milliwatts, uh, you're not really doing too well. So, um, well, yeah. You, that's, that, that's be a wonderful thing, um, but. I, I, you're you're going to be. You could probably power a digital watch that way. Yeah, I'm well, going to jump out, gentlemen. I yep. got to go walk the dog. All right. Hey, Alan, man, good presentation tonight on uh, the uh, split frequency band. Thank yeah, you. And, and I wish I'd have watched that before the Last Man Standing event. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Me too. All right. Yeah, you in particular. Yeah, right. All right. All right, Alan. Good night, man. Hey, Alan. We'll see you next week. All right. Take care now. All right. I just missed you guys on Last Man Standing uh, by about an hour. Yeah. I, yeah. I did manage to work the guy in Ohio, K6LMS-8. Yeah. Yeah, we had the really bad storm rolling in, and I had to you know, drive across <clears throat> town. It's about a 45-minute drive from his place to mine. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so uh yeah, James Gardner is asking, harvesting RF. Yes, we're talking about harvesting RF. You know, the uh, crystal radio is a good example. Uh, you build this crystal radio, and it doesn't have a battery or anything. It's just got a little diode in there, and it takes the RF energy out of the out of the air, and it powers your headphones, you know. And uh, uh, the RF energy can can be converted easily into, you know, DC in a DC voltage. It's just going to be very minor, you know. Yeah, and you know Tesla was working on wireless transmission of power. Yeah, so, yeah, he know, was. You can. That would have been. Uh, they wouldn't have figured that would have never worked because they wouldn't have been able to figure out how to bill people for it. Yeah, well, somehow those plans disappeared. Uh, I've seen shows That's on probably that. Probably the reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you know that makes a very valid point. Yeah. Well. He was able to light the uh, light bulbs from twenty miles away. Tesla was one of the first open source guys. Absolutely. I, I, yeah. I've lit. I've lit. 
neon bulbs with just a piece of wire out the window and uh, the wind going across that wire with a lot of neon bulb up, man. Uh, Amazon's got some little mini Tesla coils that yeah. are about, oh, I forget how much they are. They're under 100 bucks, uh, 70 bucks, I think they were. And uh, they they work pretty well. Uh, they'll shoot a spark out a few inches, plus you can audio modulate them and uh, hmm. use them as a speaker. I say interesting. I've seen people with their uh, with their inverted V and the, the end of the inverted V up against a tree, and running high power. And when they talk, you know, it's arcing to that tree right there, and you can actually hear them. And uh, same thing, WBCQ up there, their feed lines going out the antenna, and they had some grass and sticks that were touching the feed line, and you could actually hear the radio station as uh, as that RF burned it, you know. Now, uh, one uh, I'd heard this one fellow. He had a, uh, a tower that he could retract, you know. So when he had a big multi-band high-gain antenna, the Yagi, um, 2015, 40. But the problem was he had to make sure that his antenna was pointed north before he lowered his tower. Because if he didn't, there were power lines nearby, and if he is pointing west or, or southwest, his antenna would hit the power lines. Mm. So one day there was a big storm coming up, and he wanted to lower his tower because they were predicting 70-mile-an-hour winds. And in haste, he hit the button to retract his tower. It starts lowering. And he said, all of a sudden, every wall socket in his ham shack and some of his radios were glowing cherry red and shooting sparks out of the wall and out of his radio. Ouch. Because he now had like, I forget how many thousands of volts how many kilovolts were being fed into his main. Oh, man. I, yeah. I, hey, I've seen that on TV where there might be another person in the room and all you see is their skeleton. It you know, just blasted kind of like an everything in his ham shack. It just yeah. blew everything out. It was a sea of sparks and molten. Everything glowed cherry red. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I did something uh, with an... A NICAD battery. It's too bad NICADs are so heavy because that would be a good choice for your overnight balloon. Yeah. Um, I had a NICAD pack that we used for a military man pack I designed. And we were doing an exercise out in our training area. And I walked into this uh, dark uh, shelter that everybody was setting up their, their portable computers, right? And I had this battery with the two terminals on the top and I go well I got the spare battery I don't want somebody to set a wrench or something on top of the battery and short it out so I saw a pile of what looked like in the corner in the dark there was a looked like a pile of three-quarter inch plywood so I said I'll just stick it up there and I said I better turn it upside down on the plywood so that nobody shorts out these terminals. So I set it down, and all of a sudden, that battery turned bright cherry red. 
and started smoking. Mm. And everybody ran out of the shelter. I ran out. I couldn't imagine what caused that battery to start exploding. I finally got a big stick and came in and knocked the battery off the plywood and it cooled down, but it was glowing bright cherry red where all the power straps were. It was all glowing like it was a nichrome wire. And it burnt all the insulation off the battery. So what and was the I material? Got a flashlight out and I walked over to that pile of plywood to see what the heck it was. It was not plywood. Can you <laughs> guess what it was? Sheet of aluminum. Sheets of three quarter inch armor plate. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> oh man. Rusted armor plate. It looked like wood. Well, probably, probably pulling three hundred. You could actually see the arc welding marks that the terminals yeah. left on the armor plate. It was probably 300 amps. But you know, I recharged that NICAP battery after abusing it like that. Man. And it worked. I just put some new heat shrink on it, and it, I, we used that battery for years after that. Phenomenal. Cool story. All right, guys, listen. Hey, we decided a lot of good things on the show tonight. You helped me decide what path to go for this next launch. I hope we can get this next launch off in the next two weeks, maybe. Um, well, I want to do some testing on the pressure of the balloon. And um, um, yeah. What are you going to use for the pressure test? Nitrogen? Uh, compressed air? We'll use uh, probably use air from the shop vac. Okay. Uh, run it through a um, moisture filter. A dryer? Sort. Yeah. Yeah, you can probably get one at Tractor Supply. Yeah, they have those moisture filters. Yeah, or, yeah. You don't want to put a lot of moist air in that. All right, we got a plan. We got a plan, and uh, hey, I feel good about it. Now I don't have to build up that PA amplifier for this one. That thing had like six parts in it. That was a good yeah. amp. Hey, yeah. it had six parts in it, man. I was, I was ready to knock another one out. I wish there was some way I could hook the voltage up where in the night, in the night, it would just run. The, well, the PA have, wouldn't would work. To, I'd have uh, to bypass. I'd have to bypass it, though, see? Yeah, you'd have to have a circuit that uh, you'd probably have a little loss in that, but you could do yeah. it with some RF diodes. Yeah. There may be enough feed through. If I, I was just, also thinking that if I just turn the power off to the PA, there may be enough feed through of that MOSFET to energize an antenna. I don't know. Well, you can measure that on your on your spectrum analog. Hey, yeah, I can. I really can. I'm sure it's going to be low. All right, cool. I'm sure. Okay, we'll work on it. All right, hey, hey guys, uh, good night. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to get some popcorn. We stayed on a long time night. Thanks, everybody, for, uh, you know, sticking in here with us tonight. We still got uh, a large group in the chat room. Uh, thanks, everybody, in the chat room. And uh, hit that subscribe button and bring two guests next week. Send me through to everybody, and uh, we're going we're gonna to just get out of here and go get uh, something to eat here. Uh, catch y'all next week, next week, next week, next okay, week. Glenn, okay, Glenn, okay, Glenn, okay.